It's good to be with God's people singing his praise on a Sunday morning. At various times in the history of the church, there have been certain doctrines or teachings of Christianity that have been especially controversial. Uh, In the fourth century, it was the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. In the 16th century, it was the doctrine of justification. What does it mean to be made right with God? Today, I think the most controversial in our culture is the doctrine of man. What does it mean to be human, to have dignity and worth as a human being? What is our purpose? Why are we here? Well, certainly these are massive questions that require more than a 30-minute sermon, and I promise I won't keep you all day, but uh, they're important questions. And when you look out into the world for answers to these questions, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, In fact, some of the answers you'll find don't quite square with the plain facts of reality. So where are we to turn to get a grip on what does it mean to be human? What what does it mean to have purpose as a human being? Well, we're in church today, so if you said, well, we should turn to the Bible, that would be a good guess. So if you want to open to Psalm 8, which Pastor Doug read a moment ago, it's right near the middle of your Bible, maybe just a little bit to the left of the middle. I love... The book of Psalms, of course, anybody who reads the Psalms loves the Psalms. But I find it especially interesting that when God wanted to help us answer the question, what does it mean to be human? He didn't give us massive tomes that were inaccessible. He didn't give us carefully reasoned, dense arguments. He gave us a poem, brief, beautiful, profound, And so as we try to answer the question, what is man, I want us to see three things from this particular psalm. The first is we are part of God's creation, we are objects of God's affection, and we are exhibits of God's glory. So to begin, we are part of God's creation. And if you listen carefully, a few minutes ago, you heard that the backdrop of the entire psalm is that God is the creator, the awesome creator of all things. And when it talks about his creation, everything is his. So the heavens are his heavens. They're the work of his fingers. He is the one who set the moon and the stars in place. The earth and all that is in it are the works of his hands. We belong to him. The psalm begins and ends with an exclamation about the majesty of God's name being manifest in all the earth. And so for all the greatness and the glory of the natural world, we can't help but look at it and think there's someone behind this. We can't know and understand the world that we live in without knowing God. My wife likes to watch these nature shows. Not really a nature guy, so I don't get into it, but like Planet Earth, you know, some of the Discovery Channel stuff. And you see the the beauty and the intricacy of, of God's world that he's created. 
It's just astounding. And you have to come to the conclusion that you can't really understand why the world is the way that it is apart from God. Well, in the same way, when it comes to being human, we can't know ourselves without knowing God. So the first thing we have to understand to answer the question, what does it mean to be human, is that we cannot know ourselves apart from knowing God. Our very existence is dependent on him. Just as a person can't understand Hamlet without understanding Shakespeare, so too you can't understand the creature without understanding the creator. It was John Calvin who said, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So it's only in the context of knowing God that we can know ourselves. So the heart of this this psalm is the question, what is man? But if you notice, every verse in this psalm is addressed to God. Now you would think that if the subject is man, that the proper place to start would be a human being. And this is where a lot of people start when they try and think about what does it mean to be human. They think about our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our social structures. But the psalmist is teaching us something by the mere address of his psalm, that if we're gonna understand what it means to be human, we have to start by going to God who made us. And so he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Only in contemplating God can we begin to understand who we are as human beings because he is our creator. And this means that our identity, most fundamentally, is received, not achieved. God not only created us, but he gave us the fundamental building blocks of our identity. So to go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, and you don't have to flip there, I'll have the cross references on the screen. He says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That's our key word that connects us to Psalm 8, dominion. Let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So our fundamental identity is not something that we chose for ourselves, but it's something that God chose and freely gave us as a gift to be made in his image. See, in the ancient world, in pagan mythology or pagan uh, religion, the statue at the center of a, a temple, so let's say it's Artemis of the Ephesians or whoever would pick your pagan god, the statue was to be representative of the spiritual force uh, in that place. And so maybe it's the God of love or the God of war, one of those pagan gods. So they would craft this statue that was to resemble that spiritual force and they would place it in the midst of the temple as a way to say, this is the temple of such and such God. Well, our God, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, he created the entire world as his temple. And he placed his image, not a carving of wood or stone in the midst of it, but living beings, you and me, 
and every other human being who's ever lived, we exist to be his image and likeness in the midst of his temple. And so it's gotta be liberating for us to recognize that our fundamental identity isn't something we have to contrive for ourselves. We don't have to come up with reasons for why we have dignity or worth or value as human beings. God has given that to us graciously. Our, our value isn't tied to our looks or our talents or our success or our relationships or any number of other things that people try and construct their identity around. Our identity is we are made in the image of God. Well, think about for a second the prospect of trying to come up with your own reasons for why you exist or why you have value. It's crushing. And the, the goalposts are constantly shifting, right? Maybe you're measuring your worth by what other people say about you or think of you. That's, you're never gonna satisfy that. Or maybe you're trying to come up with what just gives you a good feeling about yourself. Well, your feelings often betray you. They're not reliable guides either. And how well do we really know ourselves? Do we know ourselves well enough to say, this is, this is why I exist. This is why I have value and purpose. Isn't it great to know that we have a God who has given us unchangeably dignity and worth and value because of our humanity? So we don't need to construct our identity because God is gracious to give us his image, to make us in his image. And that points us to the next aspect, which is that we are objects of God's affection. So let me reread for you uh, verses four through six of Psalm eight. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. God loves us so much that he has given us dignity, not only through bearing his image, but through exercising dominion over his creation. So again, to take us back to Genesis 1, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So exercising dominion means that part of the way we bear God's image is we rule the natural world the way God rules over us. We were always meant to, to exhibit his character, both his authority and his love and his tenderness and his mercy. So we're unique among all other creatures as human beings in that we have the capacity to rule over God's world. The commentator Derek Kidner, a British commentator in the middle of the 20th century, he said, what is man? Out of this whole array from stars to sea creatures, only man can look at this scene with the insight to ask such a question, even in doubt. And therefore, it already points us to the answer. Only human beings have been granted the capacity for ruling God's world 
And that means all of our work, all of the work we do as human beings to cultivate the earth has meaning because God is a God who works. We image him when we work. By the way, I don't mean work to refer to just the job that you get paid to do. Uh, My wife also loves it when somebody will ask her, she happens to stay home with our kids right now and somebody will come and ask her, oh, do you work or do you stay home? (laughs) And say, well, that's not really the dichotomy we're looking for here. I'll be honest with you, I've stayed home with the kids. I can work eight, 10 hours in the office here and I'm good to go, but two or three hours at home with the kids and I'm I'm ready for nap time myself. But that's all meaningful work right? It's meaningful because God has given it to us. Whatever we give our time and energy to that demonstrates his character in the way we carry it out, that's all meaningful. Whether we own the company or sweep the floors, whether we work in the home or in the field, whether we do office work or factory work, whatever it is, it's incredibly meaningful. The thing we spend most of our time doing is meaningful because God has given it to us as a gift to exercise dominion and to image his character in the world. And so part of the glory and honor of being human is that we get to work. And I fear many of us as Christians, we we don't really like to work. (laughs) We don't really like to do above and beyond. We just kind of do the basic necessities to, to get the paycheck. But that points us to the fact that something has gone wrong As Pastor Doug prayed a moment ago, God's name is majestic in all the earth. That, in one sense, has not changed. And yet, there's another sense in which when we look out at the world, it doesn't quite seem to match the realities of Psalm 8. So, God has given humanity glory and honor we're to exercise through work, but a lot of the work we give ourselves to as human beings is evil, right? I mean, not speaking of anybody in particular here, but just the way humans carry out their work is often done in evil ways. Work is also hard. The ground bears thorns and thistles. And all of this points to the fact that we have failed to exercise dominion as we ought. We failed in our purpose. It all started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They failed to rule over the very beasts of the field that they were charged with exercising dominion over. So in Genesis 3, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So there we were, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, given this great dignity and honor of exercising dominion over God's world. And very quickly, it turns to the beast of the field, speaking to them, tempting them, and they obey the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God. So we, in effect, we ceded our dominion over this world to Satan by obeying the serpent rather than God. And now, not only are we not exercising dominion over the natural world the way that we ought to, we can't even exercise dominion over ourselves. The Bible speaks very plainly that we are slaves to sin, that we we don't really get a choice in that matter. Uh, We're born slaves to sin. We're slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're slaves to our tongues. You ever feel that way? (laughs) Like I'm a slave to what I've said, things I've left unsaid. 
Instead of ruling over God's world as we were intended to, we ceded our authority to the one who is now called the ruler of this world three times in the Gospel of John. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself. In fact, you can barely recognize the image of God in some human beings the way we act. The early martyr stories from the Christian church when Christians were being thrown into the, into the arena and killed by gladiators, they actually used the language of beasts to describe their persecutors. They talked about the cow or the bull or the, the whatever as the one who was killing Christians in the arena. That's how, that's how humanity exercises its authority. I'm reminded of another man from the 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a soldier in the Soviet army during World War II. He was arrested during the war because of uh, some letters he had written to a friend criticizing the government. Imagine that. And he was arrested and sent to a gulag, which is a forced labor camp. And while he was there, he became a Christian, uh, got out of prison, and was continued, uh, continued to be persecuted by the government till he was exiled. But years later, he wrote several books uh, sort of explaining what happened in the Soviet Union. Why is it that all these people were massacred in just the most atrocious way you can imagine? And this is what he said. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And I can't think of a more succinct way to say, why does Psalm 8 not exactly resemble the world we live in? It's because we've forgotten God. If the proper orientation of a human being to understand themselves is to say, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've created your image bearers to go populate the earth and to carry out your works and to honor your name in obedience and love and service as they do. That doesn't match a world where people are not interested in God, where they don't care about living out his will. And I appreciated how that song that Troy sang a few minutes ago, it actually spliced together the language of Psalm 8 with the Lord's Prayer, right? May your will be done in all the earth because that's what Psalm 8 is talking about. People who bear God's image into all the earth, exercising his benevolent character in the natural world. But thankfully, our failure is not the end of the story because God is exceedingly merciful even though we have failed to exercise dominion over this world as we ought and became slaves to sin and to Satan, God sent Jesus into the world to redeem our failure. Isn't that amazing? Think about what a mess we've made of God's world, this good world that he entrusted us with and just how disastrous it is. And yet, he's merciful. The author of Hebrews picks up on the language of Psalm 8 in chapter 2, which Pastor Don led us through a few months ago. He said, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8 to be specific. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the, suf- because of the suffering of death, so that by great, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, where Adam and Eve and you and me and every other person who has ever lived, where we failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the perfect human. You know, sometimes we come to church and we're very much focused on the divinity of Christ, and rightly so. Uh, You cannot overemphasize the divinity of Jesus Christ. But I fear sometimes we don't emphasize enough his humanity. Jesus was fully, is fully man. In fact, he is the only truly human person who has ever lived. He's the only human being in whom the image of God was not marred by sin. In his humanity, when he walked around Palestine there for just a few years, 2,000 years ago, he's the only one who perfectly imaged God's character on this earth. When Satan tempted him, just like he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus exercised his dominion over Satan, refusing to obey his voice but rather obeying the word it is written. He was able to remain in control over his body and mind. He perfectly fulfilled all that the law required. You ever read the Old Testament law, try to live by that standard of morality? Impossible, or is it? Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And his obedience was not shallow or temporary. This was not a brief time where he obeyed the law and then was relieved of the burden. He obeyed through suffering, even to the point of death. And that's why his suffering and death is what leads to his being crowned with glory and honor because he proved himself worthy by his obedience. His perfect humanity was the perfect reflection of God's image and likeness. The Bible tells us that everything now has been put in subjection under his feet. Now again, it may not seem that way on the surface, but that's the reality. And we believe this word rather than our eyes. Our eyes are not as reliable as what the Bible tells us. So Jesus fulfills the role that Adam was supposed to play in exercising proper dominion over creation and to glorify God in his body. But Jesus is not physically here. He's now ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. So how is it that God's name is going to be seen as majestic in the world when the only one who ever did it has gone? He's ascended now. Well, that brings it back to us. We exhibit God's glory only now insofar as we put on Christ. Apart from Christ, we've dishonored God's name in the world. But when we put on Christ, having put off our old selves, now we restore that image in the world. It's being restored through the process of sanctification. So whereas our old selves were characterized by corruption through deceitful desire, sexual immorality, anger, wrath, malice, slander, gossip, our new selves being renewed by the Holy Spirit looks like love, kindness, patience, and humility. 
So where the image of God was severely distorted because of sin, now for those who follow Christ, the image and likeness of God is being restored in the earth. And so in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we learn then that to be made in the image of God was not only about our faculties, about our reasoning and relationships and our ability to rule over God's world. It was also about doing that in a way that was righteous and holy and perfectly exhibiting God's character. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, that's happening in our lives if we're Christians. Colossians chapter three, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit restores our dignity and allows us to exercise dominion over ourselves in a way that we couldn't before. See, again, we, we ceded, we gave up our ability to exercise dominion over the natural world, but we also gave up the dominion over our own bodies and minds. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may not exercise rule in the natural world. The natural world is still falling apart and doomed to destruction. But in our bodies, in our minds, God can rule us again. And we can rule ourselves again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what glorifies God in the world. We begin to exercise dominion once again. But it's still only in part. And so there's constantly going to be besetting sins in the life of any Christian. But we continue to pursue righteousness and holiness. We continue to put the old self to death in favor of the new self made in the image of Christ. And we do that bit by bit until all the redeemed reign with him forever. It's interesting, we focus a lot, and again, rightly so, the Bible focuses a lot on the reign of Christ, that Christ, Christ means king, and that he is the one who reigns now, and he will reign forever and ever. But what's interesting is, the vision of redeemed humanity at the end is not only Christ. Revelation 22, this is the last chapter in the book. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They're still, all, like we always were, still servants of the Lord God, servants of our creator. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign who are they? It's all the redeemed. If you're in Christ and you're putting off the old self, putting on the new self, that's ultimately going to be glorified when we see him face to face. We are going to be restored fully in the image of God. No more besetting sin. No more suffering and reminders of our sin through suffering. We will reign with him. We'll be more fully human and fully alive than we've ever experienced here in this life. And we'll be happier, happier than we ever imagined we could be because we'll have full control of ourselves to reign not only over ourselves, but over the new earth, the new natural world that's been redeemed and purified. 
And it won't be because we found ourselves by looking inside. That's the mistake of the modern world is to to find your true self by just thinking about your emotions and, and your thoughts and your feelings. We'll have found ourselves when we look to him. And so we need to recapture this vision of humanity that finds our truest selves in Christ and looks forward to this glorious restoration at the end of all things. Last year, a group of us spent the year with C.S. Lewis. Not literally, he's dead, but uh, we read a bunch of his books together. We read Mere Christianity, and at the end of Mere Christianity, this is what he says. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely a meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. That's the lack of dominion. It is only when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Until you've given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. So give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else. So if you want to know what it means to be truly human, look to Christ, give up yourself and find your truest self in him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word answers these most pressing and fundamental questions of our time. Or what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male or female? Haven't even touched on that, Lord, but your word is sufficient for all of these things. To give us a grand vision of who you are and who we are, what what our place is in your world, and ultimately a vision of where history is moving. To find ourselves on the right side of history by killing sin in our bodies and minds and put on the new self made after your image, after the image of Christ, your son, who gave himself for our sins. Father, may we live with such a great hope for the future that we would seek to live day by day in love and faithfulness and obedience to you. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.